Radio Melbourne. Alex Holmes is the Associate Professor of uh, Psychiatry at the COVID Clinic at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Alex Holmes, good to talk to you. Good morning. Oh, good morning to you, Virginia. And this is a thing that we wanted to talk about because um, I found it a little hard to recover from COVID and many, many people I know, particularly in my age group, women in their 50s, found that it hit them really hard and then there were after effects for quite some time. Now, that's not necessarily long COVID, of course. That's clinically diagnosed in a different way. But are a lot of people finding that, that low mood and, and even depression are a part of having had COVID? Well, I think it's a necessary response to a long and persistent illness that one's not necessarily in one's best uh, state of mind. But whether that's a pathological process or that reflects uh, the sort of the straw on the camel's back in the context of all the things we've been going through in the past couple of years is probably worth asking about. Uh, We know that People who have significant illnesses will have an impact on their mood and how they feel about their sort of self-worth and their self-agency, and I don't think COVID's any different. Um, and for the majority of people, they make a full recovery. So tell us, uh, given that you're a psychiatrist working in the COVID clinic there at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, clearly there's a recognised role for a specialist like you to play there. Why is that? What is the work that you do there? What's the work that you're called upon to do? Okay. Well, the clinic was an initiative set up by the hospital as, as, as occurred with a number of hospitals in Melbourne early on in the pandemic, giving the recognition that we knew a little bit about what might happen with COVID because of earlier conditions, SARS, MERS and other post-viral um, syndromes. And we were aware that there was going to be a group of people for whom persistent symptoms were going to be a major challenge. Um, after SARS and MERS, that was up to 30 or 40% of people reported symptoms at six months. So in addressing this, we, we, we were aware that probably a range of practitioners were going to be useful, both in the sort of uh, physical and physician uh, framework, exercise physiology, as well as mental health. And I guess this group came together with the expectation of not not quite knowing what was going to happen, but wanting to learn from the patients as they present so that they could sort of provide the best possible care at the time when they did eventually arrive. So what sort of uh, mood uh, or emotional conditions or psychiatric conditions, if any, are you seeing in relation to COVID now? Look, I think what we mostly see is with people who have, the pers- who have persistent symptoms more than after a few months, there's a kind of almost like a stage process of coming to realise that things aren't going to return to normal as quickly as people expected. And this is a novel experience, especially for the young and fit, to suddenly not be able to get up and do the things you wanted to do, to think as clearly as you used to clear, and to function in the world like you used to function. And and inevitably this comes with questions like, when am I going to get better? If I'm I'm ever going to get better? Mm. What does this mean for me in the world? And, And in that context, people would describe some concerns about their sort of general uh, mood, anxiety, occasionally sort of they become super preoccupied with these kind of concerns that I've talked about. So is it a mood change potentially then that's not related to COVID, to COVID's effect on your body or on your brain, but actually just a mood response to, to still dealing with debilitating symptoms? 
Uh, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think you know that we don't fully understand this condition, but we we have growing understanding. And to date, there's no evidence that there's sort of active viral infection of the organs beyond the acute phase. So the, the, any impact of COVID after the first two or three weeks is either going to be related to tissue damage occurring in the acute illness or some sort of complex as yet not fully understood immunological process. Mm. So it, there is no evidence that the virus causes mental illness per se, but it certainly causes this, this disability, which is we know from people after injury or people with multiple sclerosis, for instance, is uh, can be a, a great burden for people. In fact, disability in some ways is more difficult to cope with than pain. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, and I think that that's actually ends up having a mentally debilitating effect on you as well. one three hundred triple two seven seven four. if you've got a question for uh, Associate Professor Alex Holmes or you'd like to make a comment, I'd love to hear from you. He's a psychiatrist in the COVID clinic at the Royal Melbourne Hospital because even though, as someone says to me here on text this morning, Alex, no one cares about COVID anymore, Virginia. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but but even if it is true, there are many people who are still trying to deal with and cope with the aftermath of it. So if you've got a question, I've got a specialist here with me right now. Uh, James in Fitzroy, I think you're still dealing with some effects of long COVID. Is that right? Yeah, g'day, Virginia. Um, I, I got COVID on the 19th of December and um, basically lost my sense of smell mm-hmm. and taste. Um, what came back was a really metallic, chemically taste in my mouth for about a month and a half. Yep. And since then, it's been a really burnt coffee taste, but absolutely no sense of smell. Everything that I um, experience in terms of smell smells and tastes like burnt coffee in my mouth, but I'm not actually smelling anything. I can chop up garlic mm. and I would swear that I'm smelling burnt coffee. So have you, have you gone to see a doctor uh, about this, James, or are you just told this is just yeah, the way it is I've, now? No, I've, I've seen my GP, I've been to acupuncturists, I've done uh, shiatsu, I've done all sorts of things oh, wow. to see what might work, but um, this hasn't, um, hasn't changed, really, for three months now. Is that a common persistent symptom, Professor? Absolutely. So, I mean, we, the data is coming in from international studies with sort of six and 12-month follow-ups, and... In fact, altered sense of smell and taste is probably the most common persistent symptom after COVID. I think Norwegian study suggested the relative risk is something like 50 times. So, um, look, I'm sorry to hear that's happened, and um, but uh, if there's some relief. It's in the sense that it's 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 you're sharing that experience with a lot of other Australians and people around the world. Yeah, Sue in Melbourne. Sue, you're a registered nurse. What's your perspective on this? Oh, morning, Virginia and Alex. Alex, um, I have felt, I've done a lot of grief and bereavement workshops and counselling, uh, a lot of work with women's health and IVF. So loss has been um, a major part of my work. Mm. And I, I can't help, and I, I wonder whether you see any association with COVID and loss of potential loss of potential to see family members, to even make a choice on going on a holiday, a choice of going outside when in isolation. And so people are going through, with loss of choice and uh, loss of potential, you get a grief 
process that starts taking place. Mm. And so when symptoms, when we've recovered from our symptoms or nearly recovered from our symptoms, I think we have an expectation that we're going to feel a whole heap better. But already that grief process has started and often people have regressive behaviour um, when dealing with grief and the emotions that are attached to grief are so um, huge and complex. They and are indeed. They're, had, yeah, yes. they're very, very powerful feelings. Well, what do you think of, of that interpretation, Professor? Well, I think the notion of loss, change and grief is a, is a wonderful notion, not wonderful, but perhaps a very appropriate notion to sort of apply in this condition. We've, we've sort of been led the narrative of a new normal. And in a way, even for those who make a full recovery, uh, either socially or after long COVID, the normal is different from the one before. And as much as we can't unchange the experience we've had, and for many people, the the experience of not being physically well for persistent periods of time or being isolated it does draw attention to a certain degree of insecurity and impermanence, which I guess has to be incorporated into the way we sort of think about living going forward. Yeah. I've got a question here. I have a child, writes one listener, currently with COVID. Is the impact on the brain repairable? Is there a COVID impact on the brain, first of all? Look, I think we have to acknowledge that in, in, even in science and in medicine, there are many things we don't know and don't fully understand. And often our statements are categorical about what we, we know isn't the case. And mm. what we can say at the moment is there's no evidence of irreparable damage to the brain. And, and together with that, I'd put the notion that very, the modern ideas of neuroscience are very much built around plasticity and adaption. The, the brain is a wonderful kind of fluid uh, organ that, that responds and changes with experience and time. So if things do happen, there's no notion that it's sort of set in stole, stone. We, we tend to be able to sort of work ways around uh, problems, injuries, even traumas. So many interesting uh, texts coming in, and thank you for sending them this as well. It took years for chronic fatigue syndrome to be recognised. The mental confusion after effects of COVID are the identical twins of chronic fatigue. How long until they are recognised? Jay writes that. What's your response to that, Alex? Well, I think it's a very fair and reasonable comment. Um, I, you know, I think that, that there is going to be sort of uh, persistent discussion about the nature of all sorts of fatigue syndromes and I think it's reasonable to say that long COVID has drawn attention to a, a group in the community who have experienced similar symptoms but in much smaller numbers yeah. so I, I'd agree with that. Absolutely. Um, Mary, May I'm sorry, May in Fairfield, go ahead. Oh hi there, how are you going? Um, so I had, I was hit by COVID, I uh, caught it at New Year's Eve like everybody else and um was hit really hard and the long term I've sort of been diagnosed well it wasn't technically long COVID mm -hmm. but they said I'm on a long path to recovery and the effect that that's had on me in terms of day to day the healing process was obviously much longer but the brain fog and the fatigue um, mm. have seriously uh, impacted my career because I work in a management level I just forget everything I forget names I forget details can't hold on to memories past, you know, the last few hours. Really? That, I mean, that, that sounds really severe, May. It's pretty bad. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty bad. Um, and, 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 your doctor, and your doctors are, are sure the, 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 the causation of this was COVID, nothing else? 
Well, I didn't have it before COVID. So they're sort of saying, we don't know. There's lots of we don't knows yeah. around with, you know, COVID. But they're saying it's highly likely this is an ongoing effect from COVID, um, the brain fog. And it's also because of the brain fog and my level of work responsibilities and what have you, it's given me a bit of anxiety. So I'm having trouble sleeping, which kind of cycles around, you know, the more tired I am, the less I can concentrate and be clear-minded. And I'm just really at a, a stuck point of going, I don't know what resources I can find to improve or to work on those, what strategies to use to improve my brain's function. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good question. Any suggestion there, Alex? Well, uh, I'm very um, grateful it may came on to, to demonstrate what is a sort of common, perhaps hidden experience in a, in a group of people. You know, early on in the pandemic, we, we had less to say about what would happen now with our experience in, in clinics, what we can say to May is that trajectory clearly is one of improvement. The problem is the time frame. So, you know, and, and it's this balance that has to be struck between, I'm sure May can speak to this, doing too much, which would lead to a sort of boom and bust cycle of exhaustion the next day and perhaps not doing enough that leads to sort of a sense of nothing changing. Mm. But uh, I, we don't have a template for long-term sort of problems in young people and perhaps what we need to do as individuals in a culture is accept that there we do need a, a sort of cultural understanding that this is a real thing and that we need to build our acceptance around it perhaps including people accepting that for some for some people it will take months rather than weeks to recover. Absolutely and also we need the data we have to start gathering the data in order to make sense of it. This from April in Torquay and uh, maybe it does disproportionately affect a, a person of a certain gender or a certain age who knows but she writes struggling to get through a day without a nap and stabbing head pains that only go away with Panadol and a nap. Yes brain fog but I'm not sure which is menopause or a COVID hangover and <laughs> the two going together would not be helpful I imagine. So um, what's, what should we be doing about this, Alex? And, and if you recognise in yourself, you know, several weeks after having COVID, hang on, I'm really not feeling as well as I should, what should be your first port of call? Uh, as with all sort of healthcare problems, that your general practitioner is your greatest ally and friend and the coordinator of care. Um, and there's work being done to sort of upskill general practitioners in dealing with these, this constellation of symptoms, although to be fair, they, they wouldn't have had previously great experience. For many people, it can be managed with a good, supportive, and tolerant relationship. And 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 the principles of care are uh, accepting and validating the patient's experience and their symptoms. Judicious kind of investigation to exclude major problems, but not sort of chasing sort of investigations once they're. Uh, shown to be negative and um, uh, a sort of a pacing approach which is as I've discussed before can often be facilitated by uh, allied health phys- physiotherapy or exercise physiology which allows the person to sort of plan a graduated movement towards increased activity such they avoid the sort of typical boom and bust cycle often people describe they do too much and then the next day they can't do anything at all and then they're very concerned about doing anything the day after for fear that the same thing happens so yeah. finding that sort of sweet spot in activity is often easier to do with the with external aid and then negotiating with the people around you to understand this is 
just because it's unusual and novel doesn't mean to say it's not real. Absolutely right. Good to talk to you this morning. So many calls coming in. I'm sorry we couldn't get to them all, but the text messages that tell the story that we have been recounting today, Alex Holmes, that many, many people are still struggling with the after effects of COVID. I guess we'll cling to the good news there that you say over time, the trajectory is that you do improve. I guess the question is how long. Thanks so much, Professor. You're very welcome. Associate Professor Alex Holmes, psychiatrist in the COVID clinic at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. I just